What is the difference between joy and happiness? Just think about that for like 10 seconds. What's the difference between joy and happiness? And just kind of tagging on to what Pastor Spencer was, what had on the wall there on the PowerPoint as, you know, what can we do to provide joy to others? Will it provide happiness or would it provide joy? Think about that for a few seconds. So if any of you guys know me, I like to eat. I love food. I love food very, very much. And when I went to the promised land called England, they have really good deep-fried food. <laughs> really good deep. They have, they have a thing called the chip bomb. And what it is, like they love their, they love their deep fry and their carbs so much. It is these fatty chips that are deep-fried placed on a big white bun, lathered with butter, and that is a chip bomb. And, I, and, and that's it. That, that's your, it would be like 99p. It would be a dollar for you to eat that. And I thought, I, you know, I thought that was joy. I really, I really did think it was joy until someone told me I had to go to this place called Edinburgh, you know. For us, we call it Edinburgh. And I remember going to Edinburgh, and there is a few places that sell this very delectable dish. And first of all, you got to understand the difference between the, the south of England and the north of England. The south of England, they just use, like, you know, vegetable oil. But in the north, they use lard. Apparently, there's a big difference. Um, I can tell you there is a big difference. So not only is the fish and chips better in the north, there's also another thing that they also provide. And back in the day, back in the late 90s, they would actually have like a rack of a few chocolate bars that you can actually like, you go into this chippy and you're like really confused. You walk in there and it's like, okay, fish and chips, fish and chips, chip bomb, other deep fried stuff. And then there's like chocolate bars. So what was the chocolate bar for? What, like, is there, is there a parallel? It was no, we take, we take a chocolate bar, pick whatever you want, we dip it in batter and we deep fry it in lard. <laughs> and so I had my first deep fried Mars bar, and I swear I died and went to heaven. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm still here. I thought, I thought that was pure joy. But who thinks that, that what I experienced was happiness? Hands up. Who, 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 who thought it was like joy? Not, not even Andy? You're not going to raise your hand? You're like, I was going to, and I had a third option. Who thinks it's both? Well, obviously, we, both, we all know that it's just a fleeting emotion of happiness. So let me just kind of just read a few things here uh, that I found as I was researching about the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is ephemeral and temporary. Temporary is mostly just passing through. Happiness is something that happens to us whereas joy is something that happens within us. So regardless of one's faith, joy is present inside everyone as an untapped reservoir of potential. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and when one finds joy, it's infused with comfort and is wrapped in peace. It's an attitude of the heart and spirit, often synonymous, but 
not limited to following Jesus Christ and pursuing a Christian life. This is something that I found that was interesting, and I have to agree. Joy can share space with other emotions. Sadness, fear, anger, even unhappiness. True joy can only come from God. It is only given to you by God. Let me read the passage that we're looking at this afternoon. Isaiah 35, 1 to 5. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation this afternoon. Even the wilderness will rejoice in those days. The desert will blossom with flowers. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel's pastures and the plains of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those who are afraid, be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf. Let's pray. Father God, I believe that this, you took the writer and inspired them to write what we have before us. And so, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would just allow these words to just begin to come alive. Help us to understand what they mean. Help us to see how that relays in our life and bring application. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you think about a wilderness and you think about a desert, you think about a season, you think about perhaps, oh, this season that we're in, wilderness, desert, dry, unhopeful. And yet this is kind of really the same context that Isaiah found himself. And, and Jenny talked about this a few weeks ago. So Isaiah as the prophet found himself not only prophesying about the state of Israel in his current state, that it would be occupied by the Syrians, that the nation will be decimated, but he would go again and prophesy that the Babylonians would come back again, defeat the Assyrians, and they would be under captivity again, and only to prophesy again that another nation, perhaps the Persians, will come and take over them. And it wouldn't be another 700 years until this promised Messiah would come. I'm thinking, man, that's a really, really tough gig to be able to, to, to prophesy every day, every week, every month, the destruction of your nation to know that you would never see it come to healing, never to see the promises of the hope from their prophecy ever because they would die. Isaiah would die never seeing that day come. How dreadful and yet how faithful the prophets were. I'm starting to really kind of really love reading through this. And yet Isaiah had some kind of faith to be able to write these words that we are reading today, listening to, that one day that wilderness will turn into joy. 
that season, that dry desert season, will blossom into a beautiful field sprouting with springs. If we live in the time of the fulfilled prophecy, so we live in the age that Jesus has already come, he's established his kingdom on earth. I ask this question, why are we not experiencing more of his joy? Why, if we're truly honest with ourselves, why are we not experiencing joy even in the environment and season that we're in? An angel appeared before Zechariah and he was startled and he was gripped with fear. The angel said, do not be afraid. An angel appeared to Mary and these next words were, do not be afraid. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Do you realize that the most common command in the Bible that we see is not do not sin? It is fear not. It happens 365 times, one for every day of the year. Huh. The angel responds to Zechariah in his fear. Your son will be a joy and a delight. As Mary approaches Elizabeth, the baby inside Elizabeth's womb, John, leaps for joy, just hearing the sound of Mary's voice. Mary's song begins with a declaration that her spirit rejoices. And Pastor Spencer just nailed it on the head. Jesus is the one who brings us joy. So I wonder, based upon what we're reading, is the opposite of joy fear? Let's take a look at our text again. Isaiah chapter 35, take a look at verse 4. The first couple of verses talks about joy and rejoicing. And then verse 4 goes on to say, Say to those who are afraid, be strong, do not fear. He is coming to save you. Now, now, fear is a really good thing. I mean, like, it prevents us from dying. If I'm on the edge of a cliff and I see, like, there's, like, a, a huge bottomless pit, you know, fear causes me to want to just step away. Uh, unless maybe you really enjoy that type of thing of just jumping off and seeing what happens. I mean, like, good for you. Good on you. It keeps you safe. It prevents you from injury. There's that word again, safe. I'll come back to it. But that... Fear has a purpose to keep you alive so that you can continue to do God's will. But what happens when that self-protective mechanism gets stuck in this negative feedback loop? Or in other words, what happens when fear begins to take over and rob you of all your joy? Every one, once in a while, I, I make my kids watch this YouTube uh, video. It's only one minute long. And it just kind of goes through all the lists of if this is happening to you, then you're really, really blessed. If you have food in your fridge, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you're richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in the bank, 
in your wallet and some spare change in your pocket, you're among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than one million people who will not survive this week. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, the agony of imprisonment or torture or the horrible pangs of starvation, you are luckier than the 500 people alive and suffering. If you can read your Bible, you are more fortunate than 3 billion in the people in the world who cannot read at all. And then I do this little exercise where I just ask the boys, hey, just take a look at if Can where does Canada rank in the top 240 plus countries in the world to live? And almost always it shows up as the top five. You look up top city to live of the 1,100 cities to live in Canada, Calgary always shows up as the top 10. And so if you add those, those stats up, you realize we've just kind of won this massive lottery to be here where we are in this particular place in this time of history. So if we are the richest people on the planet, then why are we still not experiencing joy? It got me thinking, when you become the 99th percentile of the world, when you have 1%, if you're the 1% that has more than 99% of the world, more than 99% of the people in the world, isn't there a point when counting your blessings become just boasting about our excesses? And I was like, when I dropped that down, it was kind of more of a prayer to me. Remember when Jenny was speaking about consumption and the production cycle starting off in Egypt? Egypt, the richest nation in the planet. And it's interesting that the writers never actually write down which pharaoh it is. And I think it's vague. I, I honestly believe the spirit of the Lord were on these writers to make sure, just make sure that you don't mention who it is. Because it's applicable to all generations. Because in every generation, there will be a nation that will always be a pharaoh. Insert your world dictator, insert your world billionaire. When you have everything that you can get your hands on, when you reach the mountaintop acquiring everything, you begin to realize that what goes up must come down. Anxiety ensues. Fear is inevitable. You fear losing everything. And so you enter into extreme self-preservation mode. You become a prepper like me. Remember when I talked about that like two years ago? That was even before COVID. And I still wasn't very prepped. You have hordes of toilet paper. Your natural response is to acquire and collect everything you can. Remember Fight Club? Anyone remember watching that? Yes, that's a few nods. Thank you, Gen Xers. This is Edward Norton's quote. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And this whole cycle of consumption and production, doesn't it leave you kind of exhausted? You're really honest with yourself? What would happen to our communities if we all just said enough is enough? I'm getting out of this rat race. 
I'm settling for a smaller home. I'm going to own less things. I'm going to work less. I'm going to create space for our families and our friends. Please don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with having things. There's nothing wrong with having a home. There's nothing wrong with God blessing you with beautiful things. I'm just challenging us to truly reflect why we do what we do and why we feel what we feel. I want to suggest that fear is what is preventing us from experiencing joy. You remember the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis? Um, take, if you have it, if you have a copy, read chapter 6. It's very enlightening. And so if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis, he writes this, uh, this really interesting um, book about screw tape, which is the elder demon. And he, he's writing a correspondence with his nephew, Wormwood. And they're talking and chatting, and the elder demon is trying to teach and disciple this younger demon how to turn a Christian away from God. And understand the context when he writes this. It's during World War II. And so war is on people's minds. So that's kind of the context. But you can easily replace it with the pandemic. So here's a quote from like a C.S. Lewis nerd. Um, And this is what his summary of chapter 6 is. Because of your patient's age, the, the word patient means this Christian that they're working on. Because of this, his age, the patient is uncertain whether he will be drafted. Screwtape counsels worm, Wormwood to keep the patient in a state of maximum uncertainty. He should keep the patient from thinking of his fear as a test from the enemy and make him think only of the things he fears. Screwtape offers a general rule. Encourage the patient to focus only on objects and to keep him from being self-aware. If the patient is praying, however, he should be kept from thinking of the enemy and instead encouraged to think about himself. Uh, Jenny heard this quote, and then she came up with this really insightful comment. When you focus on yourself, you become more self-absorbed. And that's what fear does, doesn't it? It envelops us. It causes us to be just, we only see ourselves. Second Timothy talks about Jesus not giving us a spirit of fear. Why would, why would Timothy use that language, not giving us a spirit of fear, It suggests that is there a spirit of fear that does not come from God, but rather from the evil one? There are 1,500 commands in the Old Testament and the New Testament combined. The top four, praise the Lord, rejoice, give thanks, and do not fear. You know that song, No Longer a Slave? I had an argument with a friend they want to suggest that that song was not biblical because there's nothing in the Bible that says, like, not being a slave to fear. And then I showed him, well, there's 360 texts that talks about do not fear. I think the writer's onto something. I was preparing uh, also for next week's message on peace, and I came across this quote. 
in the Messiah's reign, in Jesus' reign, right now, the fears associated with insecurity, danger, and evil will be removed. And during Jesus' reign, right now, right here, all the fears associated with insecurity, danger, and evil will be removed, not only just for the individual, but for the world as well. And I have to agree. The author didn't say that all evil and all danger and all insecurities will be removed, but the fears associated with them. Please don't hear me wrong, friends. There are seasons when we experience suffering and mourning. There are times when we are called to walk along our brothers and sisters to enter into their suffering and weeping. There's also a place for doctors and counselors and psychologists and medicine, all of which I believe are gifts from God, and I mean not to trivialize them at all. I'll be the first to testify that if it wasn't for them, Jane, I would not be here. But I also believe that there are spiritual realities as well. There are battles that are happening that we can't see as I think about the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis. There is a war going on right now. Sin has corrupted not only our bodies, but our families, our societies, our political and economic systems, and yes, even our environment where Paul is sensitive to say in Romans, even the world is groaning in labor pains and walks patiently for Jesus to come and to restore her. So I'm going to do something really weird today. I'm going to invite us to stand, if you're able to. And if you're able to, stand. There's a TED Talk that I watch about being in a Superman pose. And, and that studies have shown that if you ha have your hands on your hips and your elbows winged out and you just broaden your chest, roll your shoulders back, now I'm starting to sound like a yoga teacher, and just respond, I'm going to say, when I am weak, you're going to say, I am strong. Ready? I'm going to do this three times, because all good things come in threes, because of the Trinity. When I am weak, when I am weak, when I am weak, amen. Have a seat. Here's the application. You were saved for a purpose. You were not only saved to get to heaven, although that's part of the package. Part of that purpose that you have, if you take a look at the New Living Translation, verse 3 says, with this news, this news of this hope about the desert turning into beautiful places, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who are weak. Encourage those who are weak. To be able to say to those who feel like they have feeble hands and weak knees that you are strong. Jesus wants us to be an encourager. I honestly believe that one of the many gifts, that probably all the things that he had talked about, about joy, one of the things that we can do is go along someone that we know is discouraged to come beside them, to say that you are not alone. 
just as Christ is with you, I am with you during this really tough season. I'm going to leave you with these two, with this metaphor. And, and the caveat here is that with all metaphors, they break down at some point. They have limitations. Everyone walks around with two containers. One container has water, and the other container has gasoline. When we are filled with joy, we pour water over people's fears. We pour gasoline upon people's purpose. But when we are filled with fear, we drown people's purpose with the water and we ignite an inferno on people's fears. Which one are we? Which one are we? We're going to respond a little bit differently in communion this afternoon. When we take communion, we remember that we used to be a people of slaves. We remember the story of the Exodus. Remember that Yahweh God saves us from the cycle of production and consumption. And so as you come up this afternoon to take and receive the bread and the cup, Pastor Spencer and I are going to administer the elements. Jesus' blood and Jesus' body. Jesus' new covenant for his new people, which has ignited a fire of purpose to spread joy to everyone. And as you receive, I'm going to encourage you to just break up in groups of two and three. And if you would be so bold to just share, what is that one fear that you might have? And if you would be even more bolder to just announce or share what is that one small step that God might be asking you to take? And then I'm going to allow you to be in your small groups to be the priesthood of all believers. Uh, Pastor Rick talked about that, about Jane and I being part of the priesthood, and you are also part of the priesthood. You are part of being this job of being a mediator. And as you say to one another, the body of Christ given to you and the blood of Christ shed for you, mediate for one another as you listen to people's fears and pray for them. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for just your word. I thank you for the ways that you speak to our hearts. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. I thank you for the joy that we can experience when you begin to squash our fears. So for this period now as we transition into communion, Father, may this be a healing space. This is a place that has no judgment. There is no shame. And if the Spirit allows us that we be able to just share what is that one thing that keeps us up at night that we're scared about that might be robbing us from the joy of experiencing you fully 
and that we take your blood, we take your body, and we allow that to just sanctify that fear and to drive it away. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. And so feel free to come up when you're ready. I want to close off our time with a, a quote from the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. And it kind of ties in with what Jenny had to say about hope in her message. Hope and joy, then, is not simply confidence in the future. It is confidence that past, present, and future are held in one relationship so that our confusions about our memory, who are we, who was I, who am I, and who are we, become bearable because of the witness Jesus in heaven by the right side of the Father, a witness who does not abandon. Therefore, this suggests that the church needs to be marked by profound patience. Patience with actual human beings in their confusions and uncertainties. Patience in an environment that seems to be unclear and in danger of getting lost. Patience in the sense that we realize it takes time for each one of us to grow up in Jesus. And if it takes time for us, then it takes time for the body, the community, to grow overall. Hope, joy, and patience belong together. Only a church that is learning patience can proclaim hope and joy effectively. Let me leave with this short benediction from the words of Jesus. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. May you experience joy this week, friends. We'll see you next week.